0: And we are rolling. This is Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. And I am your host, Alex Painter, and recording this actually from none other than South Bend, Indiana. I am up here for work, and so I'm finding some spare time here in the evening to do just a little bit of recording. So, again, thank you for joining me. And as I mentioned last episode, at any given time, there are 500,000 different podcasts which you can tune into. So thank you for choosing Onward to Victory. So thank you very much. Uh, if you'd like to subscribe and you have an iPhone, click that purple icon, the purple podcasts icon, and you can subscribe that way. By And if you search Onward to Victory, you'll find me there. If you don't and you're an Android person or if you just want to look it up on your computer, uh, the the podcast is hosted through Podbean, so the Podbean has an app you can find me on, as well as the website is onwardtovictory.podbean.com. Please subscribe, and then you will be notified of any new episodes as they are released. And if you want to go visit HQ headquarters, that's Facebook.com. Slash Onward to Victory Podcast. You can send the show a message there via Facebook, or you can just send a good old fashioned email at Onward to Victory Podcast at gmail.com. And don't worry, I'll repeat all of these. This is an onslaught of addresses, URLs, and places here, so I'll repeat all these at the end of the show. But for our very special contingency of folks, if you want to become an Onward to Victory Consensus All American, those who support the show from a monetary standpoint, you can visit paypal.me slash onwardtovictory. The show will always be free, and if you happen to enjoy it enough and you'd like to support it uh, through through monetary means, any denomination is accepted. Again, uh, you will get a mention on the show, on the episodes as a Onward to Victory Consensus All-American, and if you visit paypal.me slash Victory, you can give that way as well. But of course, as you know, most of the ways you can support the show are completely free. And that is uh, through liking, subscribing, commenting, sharing any of the posts or episodes or videos. I've actually been doing some game recaps and game previews. And if you go over to the Facebook page, you can find those. And so... I don't know. I just uh, couldn't hear enough of my own voice. I suppose po- the podcast here and the reading and writing and researching is kind of more of my speed, but I don't miss Notre Dame games uh, hardly ever. And I uh, so I sometimes I just kind of feel compelled to talk about them. And so if you uh, you know keep an eye on the Facebook page, I uh, I do videos from from time to time. So really excited about this episode. This is episode number eight, and I'm trying to think of someone from Notre Dame history who wore number eight. Unfortunately, I cannot think of anyone. I don't want to cheat and look up online. So if you know someone who wore number eight, uh, noteworthy person who wore number eight throughout Notre Dame's history, uh, feel free to send the show a message. I'll give you a shout out next episode. The only person I can think of right now is Jafar Armstrong, who's current, uh, who's obviously currently on the roster. So I guess this is the uh, Jafar Armstrong episode. Uh, so this is episode number eight. And um, really, like I said, really excited to get into this one. So this will be the second episode that we kind of just focus in on a specific game, and so the game is uh, the game is from November thirteenth, nineteen ninety three. It was the quote game of the century. And so this was actually a moniker that has kind of been bestowed upon other games as well. So typically, Game of the Century, is is it's assigned to games that it's number one versus number two. So that is actually exactly what this game was. Uh, <clears throat> again, it was number one, Florida State, at number two, Notre Dame. Uh, again, the date was November 13th, 1993, and the buildup and the fallout in the game itself just, boy, was, uh, was amazing. And... We're gonna go blow by blow with it here very soon and if you stick around to the end of the uh, if you stick around to the end of the presentation we're gonna have a bit of a discussion or I guess I'm gonna give my feedback on uh, there is a recent piece of legislation that was passed in California about the compensation of college athle- athletes pardon me and so I like most things I have an opinion about this and I think that, this is something that we can't rely strictly on our knee-jerk like our knee-jerk reactions. I think this is something that does require a lot of thought. And I think that this most recent piece of legislation does require some thought. And there's a lot of misinformation going around about it. So we're gonna clear the air. We're actually gonna talk about it, and then kind of I'll give my opinion on on what I think about it. So, but in the meantime. Uh, again, this will be the second episode where we kind of, the focal point will be of a game. So the first one was episode three, I believe, the 2012 instant classic, Notre Dame versus Stanford. But again, this one will be be a different one. So I hope you enjoy this. And um, I guess without further ado, let's just launch right into it. So I give you a look back at the game of the century, November 13th, 1993, number one, Florida State, At number two, Notre Dame, and we'll be right back. So the game was dubbed the game of the century but this wasn't the first time that notre dame had found itself in this situation in fact it was the fourth time when it became known as the game of the century again number one versus number two teams squaring off as i mentioned earlier but in 1935 notre dame played ohio state and actually won that game 18 to 13 thanks to an 18.4th quarter a very famous quote, game of the century. It was also in 1946 when the number one ranked Army team and the number two ranked Notre Dame team tied zero to zero. And then finally, a very, very popular one. Uh, in 1966, the number one ranked Notre Dame went up to East Lansing to Michigan State and played to a 10 to 10 tie. So this would have been the fourth time that Notre Dame would have found itself in a quote game of the century. But for this one, the two programs again, ranked number one and two in the country, two legendary coaches, Lou Holtz and Bobby Bowden, uh, who would ultimately combine to coach an astonishing 73 years while collectively racking up 607 wins along the way. The year was 1993 and the belligerents were the number two ranked Notre Dame Fighting Irish and the number one ranked college football team in the land, the Florida State Seminoles. However, heading into the 1993 season, the two programs were completely in different places. Florida State was the unquestioned preseason favorite to, to win it all. Their 9 and 0 record heading into their November 13th tilt against the Irish was a surprise to exactly no one. In short, Florida State was utterly loaded. Their 1993 roster featured eventual Heisman Trophy winner Charlie Ward under center and no fewer than 22 future NFL draft picks on the squad. Through their first nine games, they had vaporized, and that is the absolute best word I could think of here. They had vaporized their opponents by a combined score of 350-58. to Or works out to be an average of 39 to 6. So they boasted the number one scoring offense in the land and future Hall of Fame linebacker, two-time All-American Derek Brooks leading the defense. You might remember him, he patrolled the middle of the defense for some really great Tampa Bay Buccaneers teams in the 90s and in the 2000s. So Notre Dame, on the other hand, entered the 1993 season as the number seven ranked team and they lost a lot of players from 1992's 10-1-1 team to the NFL Draft. So you might remember guys like quarterback Rick Myer, uh, or perhaps running back Jerome the Bus Bettis, cornerback Tom Carter, and tight end Irv Smith were all taken in the first round. So four guys in the first round alone. Running back Reggie Brooks was taken in the second round, as was linebacker Demetrius DeBose. But all told, the Irish had nine guys drafted, so expectations were uh, a bit different. Many thought the 1993 version of the Irish would actually take a step back and begin circling the wagons, uh, so to speak, in preparation for the 1994 season. And heading into the 1993 season, many thought that the Irish were very overrated with that number seven ranking. and so much that after a very unimpressive week one victory over Northwestern 27 to 12, they actually fell four places to number 11. So the next week, after a week two, 27 to 23 victory over number three, Michigan in Ann Arbor, the voters seemed to realize the error of their ways and the Irish quickly vaulted up to number four. After seven more wins, they rose to number two, aided by an Alabama loss to Tennessee. So as the fates would have it, that November 13th contest would feature the number one and number two college football programs squaring off. Despite being on the record saying that he believed Florida State was quote, the best college football team I have ever seen, and I've been in the game a long time. They're capable of beating anyone in the country by 40 points. Irish coach Lou Holtz reassured the Irish faithful during the Friday night pep rally. He said, quote, we are not going to be intimidated, end quote. The following day, game day, November 13th, the buildup was immense and intense. ESPN's college game day program is a Saturday morning staple in millions of American homes. The program began in 1987, and for the first five plus years of the program, it was produced and filmed on the ESPN campus in Bristol, Connecticut. And yes, Lee Corso was a host even then. In fact, he has been with the program since its inception 32 years ago. Anyways, given the aforementioned buildup to the game, ESPN decided to take its live show on the road for the first time ever, deciding to broadcast live right outside Notre Dame Stadium. And that is a tradition now, broadcasting live on site at a college football game on site at a stadium, and that is still observed to this day. And not surprisingly, pretty much every pundit called for a Florida State victory including a youthful and exuberant Corso, who predicted a close 31-30 Seminoles win. Now, face value for a seat to the game was $27. Think about that one. But scalpers were walking around the stadium demanding hundreds of dollars for even some of the worst seats in the house. And folks were paying anything to get through the gates and people can certainly debate on what makes for, quote, perfect football weather. Now, for some, it's sunny and 75 degrees or even warmer. For others, it's a downpour in 55 degrees. Having played football for about 12 years, I can honestly say this was not my favorite type of weather to play in. But for others, we may be looking at ice bowl conditions. But For my money, I'll take mostly cloudy and 65 degrees, which just happened to be the exact weather of South Bend, Indiana that day. In my opinion, the epitome of fall football. Naturally, every seat at Notre Dame Stadium had a person in it. And though ESPN was on site, the game was still aired on NBC. An astonishing 22 million people or nearly 8% of the United States population at the time was tuned in to watch. Can you imagine that hype? Best I can tell, that is still a record television audience. So, of note, the NBC sideline correspondent that day was none other than OJ Simpson, who was almost exactly eight months from becoming the most infamous Person in the entire country, Bob Costas said as the NBC cameras came onto the air, "Quote: Perfect seasons at stake, a game in a perfect place, a collision in history." End quote. But the game started poorly for the Irish as the Seminoles executed with precision, a ten-play, 89-yard drive for a touchdown culminating in a 12-yard touchdown pass from Charlie Ward to Kevin Cox. And after tacking on the extra point, the score stood Seminoles 7, Irish 0 at the 7.09 mark of the first quarter. But a very potent Irish rushing attack then took over. Adrian Jarrell, a seldom-used wide receiver and sometimes punter, who would only get two touches his entire senior year in 1993, made one count, taking a reverse scamper 32 yards to tie the score at 7-7. He would later say in an interview with NoCoastBias.com that, quote I was a fifth-year senior, and it was my first game back after missing the first 10 games of the season because I tore six ribs from my sternum just six games before the season started. I worked hard all season to make a comeback and to be able to play in that game. It was great to be able to get out there for the Florida State game and to be able to showcase my talent once again. End quote. The game was 7-7, but the Irish did not stop there. The defense clamped up, and team lead rusher Lee Becton and defensive back running back Jeff Burris would each tack on a rushing touchdown of their own in the second quarter, giving the Irish a 21-7 lead, heading into the locker room for halftime. The second half began, and after a long 47-yard field goal from Irish kicker, Jeff Pendergrass, Notre Dame had a 24-7 lead. This was, needless to say, very, very unexpected. Especially for probably most of the 22 million people watching from their homes. But the Seminoles would storm back. As Holtz would later say, quote, I thought we had it under control a few times. But that's what makes great fights. They kept getting up off the ground. End quote. So the Seminoles would actually score the next ten points in the game, including a touchdown from future pro and overall awesome dude. Work done to pull within a touchdown at 24 to 17. Now Jeff Burris, who again, defensive back slash running back, he had exactly three carries all game, and he scored another touchdown at the 6.53 mark of the fourth quarter to extend the Irish league back to two scores, 31-17. But the Seminoles, using Holtz's words, got back up off the ground as Charlie Ward, who would finish the game completing 31 of his passes for 297 yards, three touchdowns, and no interceptions, completed a 20-yard touchdown pass to receiver Kez McCorvey to draw back within a score at 31-24 with about two and a half minutes left in the game. The Ward-McCorvey completion itself was a miracle in its own right. Seriously, look it up on YouTube. It was a 4th and 20 prayer that just happened to be tipped by an Irish defender before landing safely in the receiver's hands in the end zone. And for the first time since that opening drive of the game where Florida State came out and pieced together a a long touchdown drive, doubt and uneasiness began creeping through the Irish faithful in the stadium. Perhaps even more so when the Irish gave the ball back to the hot hand of Charlie Ward with 51 seconds left in the game. Though the Seminoles had no timeouts and they were all the way back on their own 31-yard line, Ward led his team on an improbable 49 yard drive down the field, ultimately setting up a play from the Irish 14 yard line with three seconds left to play. Tensions were high and needless to say, there was not a soul in Notre Dame Stadium who was not standing for that final play. Ward took the snap, was eyeing the field and was eventually flushed from the pocket and scrambled to the offensive left. He eyeballed again the end zone, and he found his receiver, Warwick Dunn, standing in the end zone. And while moving zipped a pass to him, the pass was absolutely on a line, but was deflected to the ground by defensive back, Sean Wooden. And the game was over. Even NBC announcer, the Late Charlie Jones struggled with his words. Quote, he says, Knocked away, not today. The ghost, whatever that means, is living. And he is smiling. End quote. So maybe some additional context is needed for that one. I still think it's really entertaining. Because uh, even, even Charlie Jones kind of gets caught up there. And he says, the ghost, whatever that means, is living. And he is smiling. We'll talk about a uh, memorable memorable call right there. But uh, the Notre Dame Fighting Irish had just upset the number one team in the nation, 31-24. to The fans stormed the field, and naturally Wooden, the defensive back who deflected that last pass, his team mobbed him, and he actually ended up tearing two knee ligaments in the celebration. But the Irish were the improbable victors. And one of the heroes of the game, Jeff Burris, who scored two touchdowns later, said, quote, they didn't know what Notre Dame was about. And after being here, I hope they do, end quote. Coach Holtz said after the game, quote, to me, the mystique of Notre Dame is faith in belief. The biggest problem with this team, I thought, was getting them to believe, end quote. The student newspaper took Holtz's word mystique, and ran with it, beginning a recap of the game with the following, quote, mystique. To some Notre Dame fans, the word connotes images of the Gipper, the Four Horsemen, Knut Rockne, and Touchdown Jesus. To others, it means the intangible feeling that comes when running onto the field at the historical stadium. And to still others, mystique is the force that hovers around the Irish football team when it somehow overcomes powerful foes. However, most people agree it is something special at Notre Dame and is an intangible aspect of Notre Dame football that has helped many Irish teams to victory. Mystique doesn't mean much in Tallahassee, Florida. Glitz and slick style are much more important than inconsequential stories of dead football heroes from a place called South Bend. The week preceding the game, Seminole head coach Bobby Bowden told the media that he overheard some of his players calling Canute Rockney Rock Knutney." While Florida State did not spend any time studying Notre Dame football history prior to the game, the Irish gave the Seminoles a lesson and became part of that history on November 13th, end quote. Now, after the game was over, it was all but certain that Notre Dame and Florida State would face off once again in the national championship game. All all Notre Dame had to do was defeat Boston College, a team that they had beaten 54-7 in the prior year. But the Boston College Eagles, at the time coached by Tom Coughlin, were riding a seven-game winning streak going into South Bend. And as it turns out, they just were really hitting their stride at the perfect time. And they would ultimately upset Notre Dame 41-39 to on a last-second field goal. This would drop Notre Dame to number five in the rankings and thus would take them out of the national championship game hunt. So they would end up winning their bowl game, and they would actually have an unclaimed national title that year um, for having beaten Florida State, who ended up beating Nebraska in the national championship game. So it was one of those years that uh, this might actually end up being a future episode. Uh, This was one of those first few years that people were beginning to seriously discuss the merits of having a playoff system in college football. But nonetheless, nonetheless, that's the story of the 1993 Game of the Century. The game which number two, Notre Dame ended up defeating the number one team, Florida State, uh, 31 to 24. So we're going to wrap up the program coming up next. But first, we're going to talk about something that's come down the pike here very recently that is very relevant and I think very misunderstood. And that is the new Fair Fair Pay to Play Act that came out of the state of California that could possibly compensate college athletes. So Um, We're going to kind of go over that quickly because I know that possibly by the time this episode comes out, knowing the sports news cycle, this could literally be yesterday's news and everyone's viewpoints could have already been kind of sussed out. But I want to make sure that uh, I kind of voice my opinion on this matter as well. So hang tight and we will be right back to talk about if college athletes should be compensated. Alrighty, now let's discuss this hot button issue that there was a piece of legislation that was passed in California called the Fair Pay to Play Act, an act that won't actually go into effect until January of 2023, so we are talking about a little over three years from now, but I wanted to give a little bit of context to this conversation because I'm seeing a lot of reactions, very knee-jerk reactions at that, where there are just some a lot of the information that's kind of being passed around is not just half true, it's completely false. And so let's talk about kind of the system that's in place. This is going to be a brief conversation because I've got strong opinions about this, but we could easily talk about this for a couple episodes, but we we won't. uh, I won't, I should say. And so we're going to talk about the system and what the bill is, and more importantly, I suppose, what the bill isn't. So I want to give some context to this conversation, and I'm sure many of you are aware of these statistics. But in 2017, the NCAA reported 1.1 billion dollars in revenue, and this actually the, the the bread and butter of this deal is the March Madness tournament alone. The NCAA reported 900 million dollars in revenue just from the March Madness tournament. That's definitely the bread and butter, but So we're talking again, 2017, 1.1 billion with a B dollars in revenue, and in the NCAA tournament, 900 million. So there are 179,000 Division I athletes, and in 40 of the 50 states, the highest paid state employee is either a football or a basketball coach for the flagship university. So that's that's really important to, to kind of note. And... From the NCAA standpoint, there are the there are many, many executives at the NCAA who who cleared the $1 million mark. And so I would argue that the system is unjust. It, it truly is. And that is because every year we read about students who have lost their scholarships because of injury or they are deemed ineligible because they take impermissible benefits. Now, sometimes people skirt the line pretty hardcore, but other times you have student athletes who are sleeping in their cars and have to self-report because somebody offered them a cot in a basement. That way they don't have to sleep in their cars or offer them a sandwich after the game because they have no money for food. It is very, very common that student athletes at the division one level, many of whom do come from lower socioeconomic backgrounds and some come from abject poverty, are forced to make decisions about their eligibility that frankly sometimes are so convoluted that they don't even realize they are making mistakes and, and, and making themselves ineligible. I would argue the system does not work because it is incredibly convoluted. Compliance departments employ dozens of people at major universities and for what? Because the, the compliance rules are so incredibly difficult. To, to decipher and can be applied in so many different ways that it is obvious to me. It is obvious that the how we define amateur athletes, I'm not saying they need to become professional athletes in college, but we do need to redefine just how amateur athletes and amateur athletics is defined. And so also, when we talk about leverage, leverage is important in every walk of life. And you know what's really important to learn when it's important to learn about leverage is when you're in college. And... The the lack of leverage that student-athletes have when they enter into this Division 1 atmosphere is astounding. Now, this doesn't extend to the coach. You see coaches all the time leave in the middle of the night for better jobs, better paying jobs, whatever have you. But once that student-athlete signs their name on the dotted line, oftentimes that is their last bit of leverage. And I know that we're trying to teach our kids about commitment. And I understand that. I have children at home. I want them to understand commitment well, too, but I also want them to understand when things are unjust. And so you have students who sign, come athletes for big institution X, y, or Z. But however, if they want to transfer from division from institution X, y, or Z, they'll have to sit out a year. That to me, that is one of the biggest injustices as they looked and see their multimillion dollar paid coaches skirt from team to team program to program and you know this is even after signing sometimes you see it 10 year contracts and they're able to just you know ditch the last 8 years of said contract to move on to their next better paying job or whatever the next step in the ladder may be the system is not designed for the student athlete in fact as a student so they are getting the raw end of the deal as as an athlete because they they lose all their all their leverage and all their Uh, their, their, their choices at at this level, but it's also, it's also not great as a student. The expectation is, is that students uh, at the highest levels, like look at, look at March Madness, for instance. Uh, How much class do you think students, student athletes miss? How much class do you think they're expected to miss? If if we're going to, if we're going to promise an education, let's make it an education. And I don't know what, I don't know what the system can possibly be in order to avoid all the class that is missed between football and, and basketball. And I'll be honest, I have a sister who plays Division I volleyball in the Big East, and they regularly go on trips, and she misses a lot of class as a result. So really, the student the student does not have a firm grasp on either student or athlete because they lose control of their destiny. So let's talk about what this bill. So this bill was signed, and this is all coming from an SI Sports Illustrated article. Um, And I'm quoting from it here. So pursuant to this act, the the Fair Pay to Play Act, college athletes at California schools can negotiate with video game publishers for their avatars to appear in college sports video games. They can also be paid to sponsor summer camps for young athletes and sign endorsement deals with apparel companies, sports beverages, car dealerships, and numerous other businesses that would pay for an athlete's stamp of approval quote, this is continuing, to be clear, the act does not create a right for college athletes to be paid by their schools. This is a misnomer that is floating around. I think a lot of people are under the impression that the schools are going to be, it's going to become the wild west. The schools are going to be uh, paying the top dollar. The schools, top dollar are the best recruits. That is just not true. The act instead addresses how various businesses use their identities. This is true of college athletes who will go on to earn incomes in pro leagues and also true of college athletes who play sports without pro opportunities and whose marketability is at its highest point while in school I've got a great example that a Notre Dame example of this here in just a second so Again, the act doesn't go into effect until January of 2023. A key limitation is that a college athlete can't sign a contract with a company for the use of their name, image, or likeness if it would conflict with a school sponsorship. So for their quick example that they give, an athlete couldn't sign a contract to promote and wear Adidas sneakers if his or her school already has an agreement with Nike. So I think a lot of people are wary of the shoe companies. Uh, inter- intermingling into this, and but the fact of the matter is is if the school that the athlete plans on attending already has a standing contract with a certain shoe or whatever have you, they can't go into an independent contract that would conflict with that. So again, I think it's really important to note that this is not the schools paying the student athletes. this is not this is just allowing them to capitalize in a very slight measure on their marketability. And as the article says, for some sports, their marketability is at its highest when they're in school. Okay. Throw out football and basketball and even baseball for just a minute. Think about the Notre Dame fencing team. Okay. Multiple times over national championships and say girly leap in South Bend, a big car, a big car dealership. This is all hypothetical by the way. Wants to have the Notre Dame fencing company uh, come out and and help them, you know, sell, uh, have, uh, promote a sale. At this point, then the Notre Dame fencing company would, or the Notre Dame fencing team, pardon me, would. Two things. A, get more exposure than they probably have in a long time in the South Bend community. And, and two, they'd be able to make a little bit of money. Okay? And that's not a bad thing, people. That, like, really, that isn't. We're not talking, we're not gonna be looking at, I promise you this, we're not gonna be looking at millions and millions of dollars changing hands. Because, quite frankly, that's what's already happening. That's what's already happening. And, and if you think that this isn't happening now, then I, you know, then you're you're coming, you're having a hard time coming to grips with the fact that this system is so completely and utterly broken, and so completely and utterly skewed towards towards the, the people who are not the student athletes having all the power in this process. So again, this would give teams like programs and teams like the Notre Dame fencing team a little bit of love, a little bit of opportunity to control, you know, their marketability and their even their outreach and be able to be compensated for that. I think that I think that's a great thing. I honestly do. This isn't this isn't going to turn. I, I mean, this is this is revolutionary legislation, but it's not going to be something that I, I, I really don't think. I think it's just going to be. It's going to give students an opportunity to, while they have some marketability, because a lot of these students won't go pro, to make just a little bit of residual income in a, in a situation and in a system that is really pitted against the student athlete. I firmly believe that. And yes, you can talk, we can talk about the value of an education and that's perfectly fine. That is perfectly fine. However, I would also argue that if you go play a certain sport in college, you simply cannot have certain majors. Like for instance, if you want to go play volleyball at Indiana State University, you, you are going to struggle mightily to become a nursing major. I know this for a 100% fact because this happened to a family member. You, you have to pick between your sport and your major. So again, we can talk about the education and it's wonderful. The benefits of, of a free education. And this is coming from me. I played Division III athletics and I pay student loans every single month. I, I, I am painfully aware of the cost of college, but I'm also painfully aware that when I went and played Division III athletics my my athlete my my experience as a student and an athlete complemented each other they didn't conflict with each other and i was able to pick my majors my minors whatever as as freely as i could and so again if we're going to talk about the education which is important and the fact that these students really aren't able to choose one of my one of my colleagues at once asked me like why why do football players at big places only study communications or general studies or liberal studies or whatever have you and that's really easy. That's because that's all they can do. Uh, the football schedule is so stringent. Uh, oftentimes, it's over 40 hours a week. But in practice and in meetings, like they, can't, they simply can't put in the time in the classroom and outside labs and all that to select their own major. So this small act, and it is small, like it really, really is. It's not going to be seismic. I promise you that. I mean, in, in an effort of progress, yes. But however, this is just giving a little bit of power and a little bit of leverage back to the student-athletes. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Please, sound off. Sound off. I am one that I can have a very respectful conversation, and I, uh, I, I relish the fact that I can do that. And if you disagree with me, I would welcome your feedback. Please. Uh, and if you agree, I'd welcome that too. But this is really this is really about this is I hate to sound like this I sound like a 32-year-old curmudgeon but this is about the kids here and allowing them to have the choice and allowing them to have a little bit more flexibility leverage and flexibility. So as you might have guessed, I think this act is brilliant because it's a positive step, but it's not also turning it into I keep using the phrase the wild west where teams are just going to be exchanging money programs are this is pro this is this is money that comes from you know, from local businesses. And I know that a lot of people will turn and say, well, I'm sure that there'll be many colleges and universities who put the local businesses in their pocket. Either way, either way, we aren't talking about exorbitant sums of money here for many of these student athletes. And we're talking about a very small percentage of student athletes who are under the microscope, an unfair microscope when it comes to compliance and keeping and keeping compliant with NCAA standards, which, as I mentioned, I mean, there are departments in big in big, uh big universities that the compliance department has a dozen or more employees because it is just that impossibly difficult to of a job to kind of keep all of your amateur athletes eligible. So let's redefine what an amateur athlete is. All right. Well, that's all I have today. So please feel free to interact with the show via Facebook at facebook.com slash onward to victory podcast. You can send the show a message. You can send the show an email at onward to victory podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or the um, Apple podcast, the purple icon, click subscribe or Podbean. And um, let's see what else. Oh, and if you want to, as I mentioned, become a consensus all American around here. The uh, the address is paypal.me slash onward to victory. So uh, again, if you'd like to donate to the show monetarily, again that's paypal.me slash onward to victory. Those folks are very hold a very special place in the show's heart. And um, we know we know them as our consensus all Americans. So <sighs> Didn't mean to get all preachy there at the end, but I feel very strongly about this. I love amateur athletes. I love college athletics. I really, really do. But this is something that's been brewing for a long, long time—decades, in fact, decades. If you remember when Bruce Jenner uh, forfeited his amateur status back in the 70s, so that way he could promote uh, cereal and, and wristwatches, all of that. So I mean, this is something. This isn't new. This isn't new. And and to 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 kind of stay stuck in the mud. Uh, with, with how we view amateur athletes and college athletes is I think is just hopelessly antiquated but anyway so please feel free to interact with the show however you'd like again this has been Onward to Victory a Notre Dame football podcast and I am your host Alex Painter and as always go Irish You are going to struggle mightily to become a nursing major.